This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, my name is Harry. My dad is the CEO of Intelligence Squared. I have four things to say. First of all, Intelligence Squared runs amazing online debate courses and camps for kids with a great organisation called Debate Mate. I've taken two of them. They were awesome. It made me feel self-confident. Now I don't feel shy. Second, if you don't live in the UK but want to do a course, Intelligence Squared will put on one for you if you can get at least 10 kids to sign up. This means you can live anywhere in the world and get the best Oxford-style debating training. My third point is, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate for more details. And in closing, here's my final statement. Debate Mate also works with adults and professionals. Same deal. Form your own group or class at least 10 people. Fill out a form at intelligencesquared.com slash mindabate and we'll put on the course whenever works for you. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. This week we were lucky enough to be joined by Philip Rowley, the media futurist and futures director at the Omnicom Group. And in conversation with Carl Miller, he delved into how COVID-19 will shape the next decade of culture, politics and entertainment. From whether traditional offices have become a thing of the past, to whether video gaming will engulf how we consume and exchange media in the coming years, Phil gave us a roadmap for how businesses and individuals can navigate the next decade. So it's a really fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to this Intelligent Squared podcast with me, Carl Miller. I'm delighted today to introduce our guest, Philip Rowley, Futures Director of Omnicom, who joins me to discuss how COVID-19 will shape the next decade of culture and entertainment. So, Phil, hi. Hello, how are you? Very good. So let's, let's begin, Phil, with what a Futures Director actually is. What do you actually spend your, your day actually doing? Okay, so I work for Omnicom Media Group. uh, And so my role ultimately is to uh, use insight and turn it into foresight about where things are headed over the next decade, and specifically how that pertains to brands and businesses, and really sort of effectively, not just casting forward to a distant intangible future, but understanding the route to that future so that we can make things actionable and tangible in the now, um, so that they don't either take us by surprise, or we don't position them in such a a fashion that seems so distant that, that, that brands and business don't feel they have to worry about it. So we, we always say that the future isn't a pin in the map, it is the map. And so it's really helping navigate towards the, the technological developments and societal and cultural developments we think we'll see over the next, say, five or 10 years. 
And and what's your kind of compass then on this map? Like kind of what 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 what's your actual way of thinking about this in terms of like evidence or data or how do you kind of pull things together to start to start actually drawing it all? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that that, that one of the our, our key, I suppose, approaches is to imagine futurism as a discipline that can be learned and taught rather than just a series of uh, random and overbearing prognostications. Our, our compass, I suppose, is to look at the broad territories which we think that we will that will be developing over the next sort of five ten years but then find the entry point in in the here and now and one of the things that we hear from you know a lot of brands and businesses is that they think that innovation is distant or expensive or too difficult to do and our job really is to teach futurism as discipline by showing them where the entry door is to all of those territories in the now or showing where the bottom rung of the ladder is and and, and effectively plan out that route in incremental improvements i think people tend to forget that innovation is something that um, happens incrementally and, and evolves rather than a sort of spontaneous disruptive moment which everybody seems to to to, to glom onto in, in in the press so it's really about tracking that route to the future and teaching futurism as a discipline well talking of disruptive moments let's drag ourselves back into those kind of fateful weeks of kind of february and march i don't know what you were doing i mean i was barricading myself into my home writing panic shopping lists of kind of sundries <laughs> and and frozen food to buy but in in those kind of early weeks were you was it really apparent to you that that actually thinking about the future and especially the f- the further future was going to be a really important thing to do absolutely i mean just on a personal level um i found my mind turning to things like how can i what do i actually need if i need to hunker down you know what can i get online what's loaded up into the cloud what files can i access if i don't have to go by uh, go back to work so there was that sort of idea of you know developing a, a remote life strategy or a strategy for a remote life but on a broader level and a business level when you work in uh, media marketing and communications you also start immediately thinking of the the implications for the the clients that you work on and trying to understand how their business can be conducted remotely and, and using sort of the the, the hyper connectivity of, of, of the modern era um, and they're the things that I started to think about but of course the other thing I started to think about is you know what are the short-term and long-term implications about what we're about to see how is society going to change what behaviors are going to stick long after this is that this is a distant memory and i find myself filtering those in to the conversations that we're having on a day-to-day basis and realizing that a strategy was going to have to emerge from this for us to advise our clients accordingly and i suppose exactly that the kind of discussion around what the implications of all of this really are has probably been more discussed and mulled over and 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 argued over over this time we spent locked down in our in our houses than almost anything else I can think of. So as a, as a kind of professional, where have people firstly kind of got it wrong? Where what are the kind of like phantom trends that that maybe we're we're obsessing too much over and and think loom kind of too large over what our futures look like. Yeah, I don't think anybody's identified any trends that necessarily won't come true. I, I would turn it back the other way and say I think people are confusing the short term with the long term. And that's the phantom trend, this idea that whatever's happening right now is the new normal. We keep hearing this phrase, the new normal, as if um, you know a lot of the trends that we are seeing, a lot of the changes and impacts 
impacts that we are seeing uh, were now irreversible. Well, we know that's not true. You know, it, certainly in our line of business, we were told that cinemas were, cinema advertising is down, outdoor advertising is down, TV viewing is up and streaming is up. And of course, those things were not going to remain high forever. Of course, they were always going to fall back down to more natural levels when the sort of in line with the peak, actually. I think people are getting confused the short term aspects of those sort of peaks with the sort of long the long tail or, or perhaps the slow climb of those trends once they're bedded in and stick and feel more integrated into society. Effectively, I think COVID's acted like a giant sampling campaign for certain technologies and technologically driven behaviours. And it's not that everyone will now all of a sudden be living a life like Ready Player One internal, but it is those people who have sampled certain things, have tried Deliveroo for the first time, have signed up to Netflix for the first time, that they may continue to use those or it might be an option for the first time when it hasn't been before and so therefore it's that sort of much more subtle weaving in of these behavioural changes that we'll see maybe um, take root in the next decade rather than this peak of oh my goodness this is happening you know uh, um, this is happening now and we'll, all, and, and we'll always be this way and that's the thing that people are getting confused I think and what are to, to boil it down let, let, let's let's kind of go through some of the kind of appears like a long-term trend but really is a short-term trend yes so is that is that things like kind of office working or the death of the high street you know there's lot there's lots of extremely exaggerated prognostications happening at the moment about about how changed things would be which of those do you think really we actually will learn lean more towards normality again? I, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that when you take a trend which is being prophesied in the extreme short term like it's a, sh- like a long term trend what you have to do is just take it down a couple of notches. I'm not saying that that trend will never happen. So it, instead of saying everybody will work from home in the future and of course we've all seen reports of Silicon Valley companies saying you know what you don't even need to come in again. I, I think if you just downgrade that three or four notches I think flexibility is something that we'll see moving into the future. Inherent flexibility flexibility in our working patterns. So the idea that everybody will work for home forevermore is, of course, a phantom trend, but it's less a cousin. It's smaller, more perhaps more modest, more nuanced version of that trend is the thing that will take root over the long term, which is, which is indeed flexibility. Same goes for the, the trend that, you've, uh, that you also named there, which I think is a great example, which is the high street. Now, of course, everyone's saying the high street is dead or, you know, there, there are lots of, you know, terrible apocalyptic predictions. And again, it's, it's perhaps in the short term that might be true. But over the long term, the high street does have a role to play. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what a future high street might look like coming off the back of COVID in five to ten years and again that lesser cousin that more modest version of that perhaps doom laden prognostication is ultimately that you know the high street will be much more digitally driven and much more digitally integrated into its into its offline excuse me into its online equivalent and again that's i think that's the way we see things unfolding rather nothing is binary nothing is doom laden or you know perfectly utopian and optimistic it will in fact be a sort of subtle mesh of both really over a longer period Okay, well, let's go to the kind of mirror image of the phantom trend, which I haven't managed to find a good word for yet. But the I like the that's a the, good phrase. It's a good phrase. <laughs> the kind of, let, let, let's let's talk about the the, the longer term trends, the, the genuine you know trajectories which which you see all wrapped up in society. And I, I'd like to begin with the ones which are least visible to us. So, um, w- what are the kind of bubbling? kind of kind of changes in society that you see that that probably are furthest away from people's kind of reckoning and 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 kind of conscious thought at the moment yeah i think that the, my first answer to that, to that would be one that maybe 
seemingly counterintuitive or potentially mildly controversial. Uh, and that is that I think we may be able to, or we might be about to enter into an age of innovation. One of the things that I was listening to uh, commentators talk about prior to COVID was the fact that there was a lot of VC cash washing around at the moment. And there was a lot of very, very historically low interest rates and a sort of coming proxy war, almost like the Cold War, but, but an innovation war between superpowers that wanted to demonstrate their prowess through technological and innovative accomplishment. And that was sort of prior. Now, I think that that is something that, again, will be accelerated and ramped up. The learnings from 2008, with the crash, was that you can't cut your way out of this, th- th- these situations. You have to kind of grow and innovate your way out. And never a better proving or testing field than this pandemic for large tech companies and businesses and brands and everyday people to see this as an opportunity to innovate their way out. And of course, maybe some of that VC cash is is not floating around as much as it was, but the interest rates are still low and we are still in an extremely um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Subtle competition, maybe not so subtle competition with some of our global competitors for innovation prowess. And I think, again, over the longer term, the, the, the invisible trend that we're not talking about is that we potentially are about to reap the benefits of this uh, of people with admittedly egos like Bezos and, and Musk and all the rest of it who think this is a fantastic challenge for me to answer, for me to leave my imprint on society, for me to demonstrate that we have the solution to everything and bring all those forces to bear, whether it be Silicon Valley or VC Cash or this ability to uh, to, to sort of solve the, the global issues is the thing that may give us a real boost and, and bring us into this potentially an era of innovation. Are we are we likely? That's so interesting, Phil. Are we likely to see innovation happening in like unfamiliar places? So we, you know, we've got the kind of digital services, we've got AI emerging technology, presumably, you know, in medicine and pharmaceuticals. But are, are there kind of other areas where you see kind of innovation maybe coming slightly kind of more out of left field? I, I think that the area of innovation that we're most likely to uh, that, that's most likely to have blindsided us because it's not within common parlance of m- most everyday people is this idea of deep tech, uh, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, which again is a tech technology which is designed to solve really big existentialist issues that cost, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of, uh, uh, of pounds to solve because it's not on the radar of most people. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about things like lab grown meat and um, artificial intelligence as well. Now, now now, I know that they are not a direct response to the pandemic. And you could say, well, how is the lab-grown meat going to get us out of the pa- a problem with the pandemic? It's really just a series of dominoes knocking against one another. So uh, the answer is, you know, I think that we're about to see some profound existentialist, life-changing technologies accelerated as a result of COVID, not as a direct response, but more as a sort of knock-on effect uh, of, because of this sort of clamour for innovation as a response to uh, almost to restate, uh, you know, humanity's genius and its ability to solve problems. Use the word accelerated there, which was a, a brilliant cue for my for my next question. So that, that is a word that's often been used to, to describe what's happening. You know, the idea that the, 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 the coronavirus and the lockdown has accelerated a series of trends that are happening already. 
What do you think about that? Is, is that really true? Or are there, are there kind of actual genuine new directions rather than just accelerations that have happened over the last three or four months? Yeah, I mean, we've looked at quite closely at this and, and I'm not going to be as arrogant en- enough to, to assume that, that there are no examples of new trends, but we've certainly not found any compelling new trends. Um, it, rather, everything that we feel that will be accelerated over the long term as a result of COVID were trends that were bubbling under the surface anyway, that had had prior discussion, that had been predicted prior. And so, yeah, I, I'm not sure, uh, unless anyone who wants to countermand my example, that we've seen anything new. Rather, we see that, uh, you know, effectively, uh, the the escalator has been turned to double speed and everything that was going to happen is happening a, a lot quicker. The analogy I use is, is it's a bit like uh, the scene in Back to the Future 2 where Doc Brown says that we've been that, that Marty's been knocked on onto, to an alternative 1985 and he draws a diagram on the blackboard. I think that everything that was going to happen, we are now on an alternative 2025 or en route to an alternative 2025 where everything that would have happened will now happen sooner had COVID not happened, if that makes sense. Are there any trends that were accelerating, that were really important, that kind of have, that, that have driven into a wall as a result of this? Are there, are there any kind of like st- stopped trends? Wow. Uh, the only way that I can think of that a trend would be stopped in the short term is due to a lack of funding. You know, when we talk to our clients about the fact that they should be innovating, naturally they, they want to tell us about um, how their restricted budgets, how their budgets are restricted. So you could take all the trends that we predict coming down the line and we can go into more detail about specifically what those trends are. Um, all I'd say is that I don't think any will be stopped, but many potentially may have an initial sort of hump to go over whilst people attempt to save money. But again, you know, it, my, my, my statement on that is that I think that that's a mistake. I know it's easy for me to sit here and tell them to spend money when, of course, they need cutbacks. But one of the learnings, as I mentioned from 2008, is that, you know, these trends can only be stopped by people assuming that money is not the answer. But in many cases, spending and innovating the way out of of the situation is exactly the answer. And that's what we've seen. Okay. well, Phil, let's let's dig into some of these trends a little deeper. And the the one I want to begin with is one that I know an enormous number of people are are thinking about, worried about. It's the it's the right, you know, the the rise and rise and rise and rise and rise of the tech giants. Yes. Um, How much more powerful have they become over the, the lockdown? And and what do you think the kind of implications of that really are? Okay, so I think they've, of, of course, um, due to the fact that we're just all using them uh, um, considerably more, uh, they have uh, seen a considerable rise in their power. However, what I also think is... I think that there is an increasing awareness of how much power that they have over us. This is not some kind of invisible Orwellian oversight. I think people are increasingly aware of how much they're being tracked and how much more they are using the services uh, of the tech giants. And as a result, one potential sort of knock-on effect might be counterintuitive and it might be counterproductive to the to, to, to the tech giants is that we may see potentially a privacy fight back, which again, to the, to, to the earlier point, is something that was bubbling under the surface anyway. We have seen um, not just tech giants actually but governments as well use contact tracing and in certain countries this is used almost as a method of enforcement. We've seen smart city control rooms pop up in India. We have seen um, drones where I'm from in Derbyshire trying to uh, tell people to go home and and, and even if uh, people even if people aren't more monitored than before they at least feel that they're being more monitored before. They feel that you know that Facebook and Google and Amazon know 
more about them than before. And that might lead them to seek out private privacy solutions. Now, you can actually see VPNs, virtual, virtual personal networks, advertised in the middle of Coronation Street on ITV now. And, and, and this is something that you can download effectively to, to, to sort of make your, make your life a lot easier and make you feel more comfortable that you're not being tracked. And also at a startup conference last year in Finland, I saw um, the introduction of something called data anonymizers, which effectively is uh, something that you can download onto your computer, whether it be an app or, or a small computer program running in the background, that effectively covers your tracks in the snow. Or, or, or another way of saying it would be to scribble out selected letters on, 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 a, on, a, piece, on a piece of writing, metaphorically, so that people can't piece together who you are or what you've done uh, and the way that works incidentally is by spamming the algorithm with something called synthetic data so it gives the algorithm so much contradictory information to to to, to calculate that it sort of loses any sense of who you are and so when they become common common use that means that the tech giants may have a challenge to their ability to apply their trade with so much efficiency because effectively they're selling or they're buying your attention but they're also in return buying certain pieces of information in order to sell you goods and services and there's not a problem with that as long as people know that they are being tracked accordingly but you might see that sort of uh, you know a set of tools which allow citizens to counteract that fact as a result of the pandemic so uh, what about kind of decentralization and kind of data unions? Do, do you think there's this kind of whole other kind of countervailing trend in a way, which at some point is going to kind of smash into the kind of centralizing, data aggregating, kind of data hungry, insatiable appetites of the of the platforms that, that themselves are getting so much bigger? Potentially. I mean, I, I hate to mention the B and the C word, uh, blockchain and crypto coin, but um, because it's sort of had a bit of a bad rep recently, certainly as an investment. But I think one of the underlying principles about those technologies and what's interesting is that it allows people to sort of ply their trade on a decentralized and anonymous basis. And if nothing else, the learnings from those two technologies might be once they become available to the general public and understandable and usable and functional to the general public, they may, as you say, be the direct direct uh, counter trend to this idea of collecting data t- together and in which case you know we ha- we have strategies um, at Omnicom for sort of getting around and circumventing that in, 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 and I don't mean illegally I mean in the sense that you know there are other ways for brands and businesses to talk to their customers uh, without necessarily having to you know store huge amounts of information um, a- about them but um, that is uh, yeah I agree there, there, there is potentially a, a tension point um, between those two on the horizon. Let's go away from data and over to decision making. So, so you, you mentioned governments a bit already. Do you, is is that another kind of focal or principal trend that you see? That almost this kind of changing relationship between governments and the governed. I think so, um, and I think that's typified by the fact that we see a lot of big governments. We see a lot of big governments, so governments taking top-down control of their societies during a crisis, but we see it from conservative governments, which have traditionally have been the parties of, um, of small government. And, and of course, they've had to do that as a result of, um, of, uh, of the crisis. But I think the way that they've done that, partially, is through the use of technology in the way we've just discussed with the tech giants, but also through the use of connectivity. And, and, and you know, it's really interesting that um, many of the five government-led 5G programs around the world have been accelerated 
accelerated as a result of this crisis um, in order to um, ensure equality of access, you would say, on the face of it, but actually, to your point, is to ensure that they can govern their citizens better. I mean, a couple of examples. Telstra in Australia, who are the um, Australian telecommunications company, have brought forward their 5G development and invested an extra $500 million. There was provision in the $10 billion FCC bailout that Trump signed off for addressing rural communities that don't have uh, proper connectivity so that they can't be um, governed, I I suppose, uh, to to a certain extent. They had 10 million people falling to what they called the homework gap. So kids couldn't do their homework because their internet was too slow. And then in this country, of course, we have 5G masts being put up all all over the place. And and, and then we have Huawei in the mix, which might obfuscate the the, the development of that. But that's all part and parcel, that 5G development of governments wanting to ensure equality of access and to govern their citizens through these technological systems off the back of what we've seen um, during the pandemic, even conservative governments, which you could argue are not into spending big. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you think is going to happen to trust? Because one of the, I mean, I, I mean, trust in kind of of individuals in kind of all big institutions, so be that a corporate or a government, because, I mean, it, it's hard to talk about futures around coronavirus without, of course, mentioning conspiracy theories, the infodemic, you know, and the uh, and basically the kind of organised, mobilised resistance to the 
epidemiologically driven consensus around around the lockdown. How significant do you think that QAnon conspiracy theories in general are kind of as a as a new cultural force? I think they're incredibly significant. Um, I think that we've seen trust take an absolute nosedive. Again, this is not something that was that is new during the pan, new that is new as a result of the pandemic, but something that's been accelerated. Where effectively propaganda has been democratized. Anybody who has access to a keyboard can can state something without without recourse ultimately, or certainly uh, uh, can say something without without um, uh, being sued uh, so easily. I, I think that we are going to have to. This sort of keeps me awake at night. Actually, I think we are going to have to find a better functioning system for um, establishing trust and I don't know what that looks like I don't know whether it's used if, if we use some kind of certification to demonstrate the provenance and providence of information I don't know if it contains something that's built around something like a, a digital watermark which ultimately signifies the veracity of the origin of a piece of information again going back to the sort of the, 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 the blockchain argument that might be a way of somehow ensuring that something is um, for want of a better word uncorruptible to a certain extent but this is i think that trust is the biggest issue facing society today particularly given the decentralization of truth if you like uh, and the fact that anyone can uh, anyone with a computer can can make proclamations which don't which don't have to be backed up and that has real implications for government it has real implications for brands and businesses and it has real implications for citizens and it's something that somebody really needs to solve and i'm afraid i don't have the answer to it in the short term <laughs> i mean because because at least to me it kind of it really feels like there's there's something of an earthquake rumbling under lots of our kind of pillars institutional pillars like be it the kind of bbc or professional journalists or government or the police service you know where there's this kind of you know morris of lockdown plus online influence operations and so on is really shaking it what, what would so say say uh, just to go pessimistic for a second phil we don't manage to kind of engineer ourselves a kind of trust solution so say trust continues to decline in, in the kind of slightly longer term, kind of what, what, what does a society with very low levels of trust actually look like? And, and is that something that, say, you, you know, corporates, companies and so on really have to start thinking about now? I think so. I think uh, my view is is that uh, we will descend into a series of extremely discrete network tribes so that, you know, the national borders will break down and we'll actually, we, we will seek to disassociate ourselves with those that we feel are untrustworthy. And what you'll get is this sort of atomization or a virtual atomization because it won't be along street lines or national lines or even class lines. It will be sort of networked across borders with people who you feel you have sh- shared with common values. And so I think that we'll see a sort of... A, 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 kind of a multi-layering of society um, which is based on on people with shared values rather than any other kind of social construct. Um, That for businesses and brands means that they have a sort of new set of target markets rather than, you know, um, you know, uh, should we say men 16 to 34, it's attitudinal target markets or attitudinal sets where they feel that they can cover off quite a few people with a particular messaging opportunity by appealing to a, a disparate but connected group of people rather than a vertical cohort based on any kind of usual socio-economic demographics Um, and that we don't want to get to that situation because that means that it's very very difficult to build bridges between those disparate and discrete targets but it is something that i think might come out of a situation where we don't solve that trust issue using potentially a technological solution that as the way you just mentioned well, to turn to something a little lighter, I think for our, our, our last kind of big trend to dig into, as, as everyone else was 
doing wholesome things like baking banana bread. I, I was getting my PS4 back out and I can't imagine I'm alone in kind of turning back to gaming during the lockdown. What's happened there? What's happening with gaming? We've seen a massive increase in gaming, and this is a piece of work that we're doing at the moment, which we think there's going to be, this is one of the perfect examples of how long-term change will come out of the pandemic. And a couple of things to say on this. First of all, more people are gaming than ever before, or were more gaming uh, than ever before, before the pandemic. And now, of course, that has rocketed, not least because obviously people have been at home, but also because people are taking up at the same time um, hyper-casual gaming, which is uh, the just using it on your phone or using it on an app. And people don't even consider themselves gamers, but they're just sort of playing a quick round of Scrabble uh, whilst, they're, whilst they're waiting for the kettle to boil or whatever. So there are more people gaming th- than ever before. That comes at the same time as more people are sort of static and stationary than ever before. But it also comes comes at a time when the gaming companies themselves are, are, are developing the technology to such a point that you can now have other media ensconced within gaming environments. So on Animal Crossing, we've seen TV chat shows within Animal Crossing. We have seen Travis Scott perform a concert within Fortnite and achieves 27.7 million views. We have seen people learning um, within gaming environments. There are mind lessons in Minecraft now, uh, science lessons and history lessons in Minecraft. Um, and what we actually think that... Ge- will see is that gaming will swallow all other media. You know, Marshall McLuhan said that, that every new media swallows the previous media. So there was originally writing and then radio came along and added you know, audio and took stories within it within its purview. And then TV came along and swallowed radio and added visuals. Then the internet came along and swallowed TV, which contained radio and, and, and writing. And now gaming will swallow everything. Not because that it will be necessarily be bigger than all of those things, but because it can contain all of those things. And so Soon, I don't think that we will need the word gaming anymore because that just refers to computerized competition. We'll need a different word for it. Um, Spatial computing is one that's been used or virtual media is another. But that sort of has connotations, again, of, of VR headsets, which I think is inaccurate. But the biggest change, I think, from a media perspective to come out of, of COVID is that, that, that this idea is gaming will morph into a channel of channels that will contain all the, all the channels inside it and be the glue between them. And that's going to have enormous significance. Just as a quick example, if anybody under the age of, sorry, excuse me, if anyone over the age of 40 has never been on Twitch... Go and watch Twitch for half an hour. It is bewildering and confusing. And yet at the same time, you know that that's what the future of media will look like. Everything is on there. There is people spectating other people watching games. There's a social layer over the top. There's music on there. There's celebrities on there. There's sporting fixtures on there. That's what the future of media looks like. It's confusing and bewildering, has multiple parts and contains all other media within inside its platform. And that's what I think we'll see. That's a, that's a really compelling and when, when you when you put it so so eloquently, it's hard to see how it's not going to happen. So so imagining a society ten years from hence where we are maybe all gamers without even really thinking we are gamers anymore because it's so ubiquitous. What are the implications of that for all of us? Do you think like is that going to change the kind of society and who we know? Is it going to change? Will we all become much better problem solvers? Are there are there any, any kind of personal consequences of all of this that people might start to think about? Yes, I, I think the danger is actually going back to my to my previous point is that when we can associate virtually with anybody that we wish to associate with, and you don't have to rub shoulders with the person on the side on on, on the bus that's speaking loudly on his phone, I think it will just um, compound the echo chamber effect that we see uh, going on on social media during the pandemic. 
pandemic and before and after. I think that, you know, when you can spend time interacting with people of your choice in a way of your choosing and avail yourselves of entertainment options and, and, and educational options and almost be ultimately selective about your audience, it may mean that we don't come into contact with any kind of people, with any kind of media, with any kind of messaging or communication or thinking that we wouldn't have ordinarily come into contact with. So it could potentially compound that um, atomization and compartmentalization and si- social siloing. And I don't know what we do about that, but that is something that uh, it could be a potential consequence. When we have ultimate choice, when we can draw any picture or painting that we want, when we can listen to any sound that we that we wish to, when we can occupy any location virtually that we want to, we may find that we that we filter out the things that we didn't know were good for us, that we were being exposed to against our choice, and that could be a potential issue. How far away are we from a major political party running a campaign on a within a virtual space? Well. <laughs> Given when there are elections, <laughs> given that most political parties are perhaps a little bit slow to the punch, in 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 my view, certainly in this country, I don't think that it's going to be in the immediate. I don't think it will be by the next election. I wouldn't imagine, but I think that certainly it will become part of a standard political vocabulary. Certainly within the next couple of decades. And I think Obama was one of the first people to embrace uh, micro targeting uh, in the 2008 election. And, and it wasn't really talked about very much because it wasn't very well understood. But then, of course, fast forward to Trump's election and then people were using it uh, as an excuse to say that this is this is the reason why the election has been manipulated. If there are any experiments in virtual spaces in politics at the moment, I think that they're certainly not prominent enough to be part of the uh, of the discourse uh, for a little while yet. So, Phil, in, the, in this kind of last kind of mini section of the talk, I'm keen to kind of bring it kind of back home to, to, to people, people listening to this that, that I'm sure have found like lots to be optimistic about and maybe some things to be pessimistic about in all the different trends that you've kind of woven together and, and described. Are there any trends amongst all that you see that, that first off, it's kind of worth warning people about? you know, that, that might impact them the most in a, in a way which will be negative, that they really need to start planning and thinking about now? Well, well that exact point. I, I think that for many companies and for many and many citizens that a sort of a plan B or a contingency plan may become a standard practice or should become a standard practice. You know, when this, when I went to the supermarket on the first night that the pandemic looked like it was going to get serious, I went about 8.30 and all the shelves were empty. Uh, and I started to get a little bit panicked. Uh, and I think that if, pan- if if there was a pandemic came along again, or maybe not a pandemic, maybe another event of, of, of equal import that was just as globally significant, I would hope that supermarkets and businesses and people may have developed a contingency plan or a plan B. And that might involve, uh, you know, um, stores of cash or stores of food, not sort of prepper standard, but, you know, just knowing, knowing what they would do in a crisis, because part of the panic that was driven during those first week is people had not had the experience of this before and so yeah i I would advise people in the same way as they take out insurance or or get fire alarms and carbon monoxide alarms or or or, you know work out how to save for something that they have a sort of a mandated um, escape route and a backup plan for such situations in future because we have been found wanting in this situation how about jobs so, so, you know, sadly, of course, you know, the, the furlough scheme winding down, redundancies winding up, there, there's uh, 
probably people listening to this now that had a job a couple of months ago that do, don't now. In in the trends, how can kind of people react in the trends that you see to maybe think about new industries or new sectors or new skills, you know, to, to move into or acquire? That's difficult to predict, I think. I, I, I think in uh, off the back of the pandemic, obviously, there are people who have lost their jobs. But again, you sort of in that longer term, I think that, you know, they, they will be found again, hopefully, as a result of things getting back to normal. But further down the line, I think just just the general uh, uh, efficiency drive and automation and robotization that we see of industry in general is something that is more of more concern rather than the sort of post-pandemic uh, implications. Of, uh, of the job market uh, and the things that I've read about um, in the past um, is really to try and move into into work that doesn't a doesn't involve any kind of repetitive pattern because that's something that machine learning could pick up and repeat and and be a job that requires emotional intelligence is something that won't be uh, uh, replicable in, in the short term so if you are an artist or a nurse or somebody that does something that isn't on a production line this is something that will hold you in good stead over time and and i think that's more keen to keep front of mind rather than um, anything that's come out of the pandemic which i think jobs will slowly recover in the midterm how about kind of other key life choices phil for people so you know i'm sure people are gonna trying to sell their house move to the country get away from you know is there a danger that kind of people are actually making life choices based as you said on the kind of short-term impression of how society is going to change actually rather than what's going to look like two years from now I think there is it's the opposite I think there's a danger that they are not making decisions based on the short term so in other words people are holding off on things they're holding off on selling the house they're holding off on going on holiday they're holding off on uh, on uh, on, a, on a new car uh, and I'm not advocating necessarily that they go out and do all of these things and throw caution to the wind not least because we have a set of instructions which says you know for the most part trying to limit yourself to to, 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 to congregating with less than six people so so I think that's more likely to have the short term is that everything's on pause so people it's not that people are making the wrong decisions I think people are taking no decisions because there's a whole wait and see policy that is just sort of embedded in our public consciousness in the moment and that has more impact on the economy and it has more impact on jobs as you've just mentioned the question you just mentioned than, than anything else in my view Final question then is this, I suppose, Phil. How can everyone be a bit more like you? How can people adopt a bit of a kind of future-minded mentality or way of thinking about these kinds of these kinds of issues because i'm sure we're all having to scan our own horizons at the moment and and any ways of doing that better of course hugely hugely valuable for all of us I think it's, again, separating that short term from the long term and understanding, you know, predicting where you would like to be in five to 10 years and understanding the need states that you may have in those 10 years and then incrementally building towards those rather than reacting in the now or not reacting in the now, as as we've just said. So that's the first thing, understanding the difference between long term and short term change. The second thing is to, you know, search for smart solutions. There are plenty of smart solutions that have bubbled up, you know, where, you know, Zoom has, has gone gangbusters since, since, uh, we, we, you know the, the pandemic I was w- working on a, an interactive whiteboard program the other day as well which is really interesting as well so you know feel free to avail yourself of smart solutions which have been brought to the fore have been sampled or demonstrated uh, and make use of them and continue to make use of them if they work for you after the pandemic has long gone and the third thing which I mentioned is have a plan uh, is have a plan B a contingency plan a backup escape route as well so if this did come along again ensure that you have almost like um, in the way that a computer has 
safe mode and it, it goes to a set of presets which allows the computer to keep functioning while you solve the problem. Have a set of your own presets which allow you to sort of fall back uh, into a really sort of a, a position that allows you to continue to function whilst preparing for, for what comes next. And then, and then lastly, what about companies? So, of course, like lots of companies are trying to claw themselves back into the pattern of the business model, which, you know, has been so disrupted and undermined. Um, is there a kind of, are there ways of thinking for companies and their leaderships at the moment, which you think in the kind of long term will allow, will, will allow them to survive and to flourish in ways which um, other companies won't? Yes, I think it's if you sell a physical product that people need to come and see or people pick off the shelf or people want to smell touch, it's it's to do two things. Think about how that product looks in again that sort of spatial environment how do you get your brand and your brand values into down down a broadband cable effectively how can people use your product sample it get a feel for it and learn as much about it as possible other than just sort of standard website when people aren't leaving the house as much in the short term or in, in, in indeed indeed the midterm and the second thing is as well is when people do start move coming back to the high street and start physically moving around how can you can make it worth their while that they've actually got off their sofas and come into your store what else can you offer them at an experiential point of view that you think that will, will make that trip worthwhile? I think increasingly we'll see shops, again, after the long term off the back of this, that don't necessarily resemble shops. You know, shops don't have to be shelves and shelves of items. They can look like chill-out zones. They look like laboratories. They can look like gardens in order to make it so much more different um, for you to, you know, to, 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 to not choose the sort of the, the dry, functional e-commerce option. And those are the things that I think companies can do. Virtualize the product, but also make the physical display and positioning of it compelling enough to make people to want to come into store and see it and feel it and touch it and smell it amazing well philip thank you so much what a great discussion it's been it's been a real journey and i I hope we've transported everyone into 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 this vision of 10 years hence and everyone's now a little better forearmed and forewarned thanks very much everyone for listening you've been listening to intelligence squared and i'm carmilla thank you